because I was brought up in quite a racist area in southeast London, a notorious kind of BMP stronghold. At the time, I didn't really feel like I was working towards something that was crystal clear, but my immediate reaction wasn't a reaction of, I love this place, I'm gonna stay here forever, and I think sometimes we can get hoodwinked into this fairy tale philosophy like, yeah, if it's meant for you, it's gonna be perfect. That isn't always the case. It wasn't just about the money, it wasn't just about the opportunity or the status, it was more about, okay, what impact am I gonna leave on this world? There are systems that are unwritten processes and situations that are deeply detrimental to this concept, this notion of equality, diversity, inclusion, that need to be destroyed. The work is hard, the work is detailed, the work is nuanced, the work is intricate. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Leadership. Um, as always, I have an amazing guest in the booth today. He is, even though he's a Liverpool fan, I'll forgive him for that. Um, he is an amazing man who's doing amazing things, which he's going to share about. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my guest to introduce himself, but who are you? What are you about? And then share what your name is with the audience. Who am I? Um, I am a husband, father of two. I lead an organization that is dedicated to equality, diversity, and inclusion. We take a data-driven approach. And really, the idea is to maximize our impact, the impact that we have in the organizations we work with, the industries we work in, and also the people whose lives we, we touch. Um, really focusing on diversity and inclusion as a means to uplift us all. I think when we focus on the things that make us different and also the things that, that draw us together, we as humans have a much richer existence, a much richer um, life experience through, um, I guess, that shared, shared connectivity, shared vision. Um, yeah, I think that, that sums up. As you, as you mentioned, I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, so I was born in Liverpool to Nigerian immigrants um, and spent most of my life in Southeast London, hence why I don't necessarily have the strongest Scouts accent. Um, children in Southeast London can be quite harsh, so I very quickly lost my accent. Um, and yeah, for the last eight or so years, I've been living in Birmingham. Um, so Birmingham's the base, uh, although we do work uh, across the UK and some bits internationally. Um, so yeah, my name is Mac Alomli. You have managed to live in Liverpool with strong Scouse accent and avoided that. Birmingham, you've lost 10 years and avoided their accent and you just kept your London one. Like, what's the secret? You know, I actually did have a strong Scouse accent growing up. So when I, when I, so I moved down to London when I was um, five or six and I had a very strong Scouse accent. Um, but yeah, as I said, kids can be cool. So... I very quickly lost that. And then I think you reach an age where you just don't, you, your accent is consistent. So I think past the age of um, 18, maybe 21, I think it's it's harder to change accent. Um, and also I think, interestingly, I'm, I guess I'm not 
that exposed to like thick Brummie accents on a regular basis, which is a weird thing to say, but um, I guess most of my my life is kind of spent traveling up and down the country. So it's not just one accent that I'm kind of hearing on a consistent basis, it's, it's many. So I think that adds to it in terms of my ability to potentially avoid a Brummie accent, but who knows, who knows what the future holds. What was it like as a young Mac, a teenage Mac? What were, I guess, your hopes, your desires, your dreams at that point in time? A really good question. Um, interestingly, I've always wanted to do business. Um, I think as a, a young person growing up, I didn't necessarily know what that meant or what that looked like or what the parameters or spectrum of business was. So. I always knew that I wanted to be in, I guess, a leadership position. Or I, I quite like the idea of um, leading, growing businesses, um, operating in something. Because I've always been quite strategic, I've always been um, quite a, a thinker. Um, so it really appealed to me in terms of being able to think about things, strategize um, about situations, and for those to bear fruit um but as a young man I didn't necessarily know where that could take me um and I guess at the time so in my teenage years I was a little bit disillusioned with the education system um for kind of context I was brought up in quite a, a racist area in southeast London it was like three miles from where Stephen Lawrence was killed it was um a notorious kind of BMP stronghold at the time which was just coming out of that um so the school had kind of racial tensions I went to a grammar school which added a different lens as well in terms of um socioeconomic differences and I didn't necessarily feel um like I belonged in that system I didn't necessarily feel like I belonged in the school um I feel like the teachers went out of their way to make sure that I didn't feel like I belonged which is you know an interesting perspective but I I, I always knew that I, I like business I enjoyed business I enjoyed business studies I enjoyed economics um, but I didn't necessarily know what the the avenues or options were so I, I did feel a little bit lost I did feel like I it was maybe a pipe dream that probably wasn't realistic at that stage. Were you ever encouraged even, I know you said that teachers made you feel like you didn't belong. Did you get any encouragement from anywhere around economics or business or leadership in that period of time of your life? That's a very deep question. Um, I, so definitely not from school. Um, definitely, definitely not from school. Um, I just remember really like disliking all of my teachers and even the teachers that were all quote unquote cool. Um, just problems uh, for 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 no reason. I think part of it was also a little bit of restlessness on my part. Like I didn't feel like school was majorly challenging. I didn't feel like it was majorly relevant in terms of some of the stuff that we were um, being asked to study. I think encouragement for me came in sports. I was really into basketball when I was I was growing up. Um, I was part of a church group as well so I think I got a bit of encouragement from from church in terms of um just being positive um and then I guess my, my parents were always supportive I'm not sure if 
encouragement is that the word that I'd use to describe it, but they were they were definitely supportive of um working hard and um you know committing to something and making something of myself um but yeah i, I guess supporting more than encouragement and i'm not sure i'm not sure what the the delineation is between those two terms but it felt more like support than encouragement if that makes sense yeah it does and the reason i haven't asked that because i was i was curious because sometimes you listen to people talk about some aspirations they have from a very young age and they're so disillusioned that they don't ever pursue them but you did despite not necessarily having the best environment in in a school setting you still kind of went down that path and even like the career that you had was very much in like great organizations and you were in positions of authority you kind of worked your way through that so there was something around it that kept that hope and dream alive and i guess i was trying to understand what was it that helped you keep on going despite what you had around you i think it's it's, it's really weird that hi- hindsight i think is is a wonderful perspective but at the time i didn't really feel like i was working towards something that was crystal clear as that I, I knew that i enjoyed business i knew that i wanted to be a business person or operate in in kind of a business environment but i didn't necessarily chart a chart to say you know year one I'm going to do this year two I'm going to do that kind of um accidentally fell into it um and that sounds like a weird thing to say but um I think my relationship with the education system really discouraged me from I guess pursuing greatness through education so I was kind of just in education to essentially to keep my parents happy um I went to university I could have got into a better university for undergrad than I did, but didn't necessarily didn't necessarily pursue it. Just wanted to go to university because it was the, the thing to do rather than um, go out into the working world and get a job. Um, and then left university not necessarily knowing what my next step was. It was also at the time of the economic crisis, so you know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, just seeing daily reports of companies going bust and, and people being laid off and you know I still vividly remember uh, the news stories of people like walking out of Canary Wharf with, with boxes of their belongings having um, been fired or, or being laid off and that was the environment so my biggest motivator at that time was I need a job because I don't want to be unemployed and there were all kinds of stories about people that had left university with degrees and you know struggled for two or three years to, to find jobs I also had um, quite a few friends that were pursuing teaching and things like that because at the time teaching was like a guaranteed job if you had a degree. Um, so it was more, you know, rather than having an intentional plan to say, you know, I want to be in business or I want to, to to do X, Y, and Z, it was more a case of I don't I don't want to be unemployed. Um, so let me get a job and let me work really hard at trying to secure my future. Um, and it wasn't necessarily about passion, um, but long story short, I, I ended up working in the energy sector for a small consultancy. And I remember them calling me for an interview and, and you know, asking, like, you know, what do you enjoy about the energy sector? And I was like, I had to make something up on the spot and just, just like, trying to black my way through it. But I had no, no intentions of, of getting a job in energy. There was no grand plan to say that like, this is the route for me. It was more a case of I just don't want to be unemployed. Um, 
and then long story short, I started working in the energy sector and it was probably only after a year and a half, maybe two years that I really started to enjoy it. And I started to understand how I could, how I could apply myself and also how I could lean on some of the things that I really enjoyed in terms of economics and business and, and how that kind of manifested in the the energy sector at the time uh, I think I was deeply fortunate to join a company that essentially allowed me a certain amount of freedom um, allowed me to explore my interests allowed allowed me to um, really do a lot of things that I enjoyed doing um, and then over time that that kind of love and appreciation for the energy sector grew and I think as a result I was more inspired to progress and more inspired to actually pursue something which at the time looked like a, a career in energy it's amazing how um i get to start to think around when people are going into roles and they're like i'm not quite sure what it is i i want to do but how much a lot of times that can just be like it seems like a red flag but actually there is a school of thought that says explore Explore and see what you're good at. Explore and see what sticks. Explore to learn what you like and what you don't like. And if you go into somewhere or go into a space or a job that you don't like, then at least you've got some data points as opposed to having absolutely nothing right now. Or you can figure out, like, actually, there are things about this that I do like. And then you go down that path and then it becomes something of a career. So that journey of you saying you accidentally fell into it, I was like, actually, that the accident is quite a good way of people moving nowadays who want to be intentional and it doesn't sound like it but it's quite key it's an interesting one though because i think that um one of the things that i've observed probably more so about this generation than any previous generation is i feel that we're quick to cancel things quick to write things off whereas when i think about my, my first year maybe two years in the energy sector like it wasn't deeply enjoyable it wasn't kind of an immediate love at first sight um interaction um I I remember not necessarily enjoying it I remember thinking like six months in what am I doing here you know how long have I got um got left here essentially in terms of what I want to do long term um I did see it as a bit of a stopgap but I think there's something to be said about sticking with it and and really um pushing through what is what isn't necessarily immediately comfortable because it wasn't comfortable at, at the start um it was only after a while that that love grew and, and after a while that i saw the different avenues and the the kind of length and breadth of what i could do in that space um but my immediate reaction wasn't a reaction of i love this place i'm gonna stay here forever and i think Sometimes we can get hoodwinked into this fairy tale philosophy, like you know, if it's meant for you, it's going to be perfect, and you know, day one and and day ten are going to be absolutely amazing, and we'll just go from there. It's like actually, that isn't always the case. Sometimes you have to put in the graph. Sometimes you have to stick with it when it gets hard. You did that for ten years, and like I said you worked at, you know, what about like KPMG National Grid, Scotch Bar, kept all that kind of stuff, and did some work UK governments as well. What changed about that environment for you to decide to go down a completely different path? 
it's probably more relevant to say what didn't change. So I don't think there was a, a fundamental change. Like towards the end of my career, I still enjoyed the work I did. I still enjoyed the energy sector. I, I still felt it was an environment where I could apply myself. The things that didn't change was the the level of diversity in senior leadership. Um, there was also a perception, and although I, I personally progressed, it was generally true that people from underrepresented backgrounds didn't progress as quickly as their, their peers. And even when I contextualized my progression, yes, I progressed. Did I progress as quickly as my peers that happened to be private school educated, white middle-aged, middle-class, heteronormative? Um, the answer is no. Um, so it wasn't necessarily what changed. I think the energy sector is quite a slow-moving beast. Um, things generally don't change that quickly. And diversity and inclusion was one of those things that didn't change. Um, and that really, I guess, inspired me to some extent, but made it more urgent in my mind in terms of what work needed to be done here. Um, at the time I was looking around that kind of diversity and inclusion um, as a discipline and, and not necessarily feeling that there was anything transformative about what was being done. So we were in a space of kind of annual unconscious bias training and it was mandatory a couple of organizations I work for and it was mandatory to the point that people rolled their eyes and kind of clicked through the you know, the, the e-modules or whatever as fast as possible um, didn't retain any information didn't see it as something that was adding value it was kind of like um, I have to do this again um, that kind of mindset to, to equality, diversity, inclusion and such um, so, so that, that wasn't changing and I think from my perspective I definitely looked at it from a point of privilege and I was, I was privileged enough to be in a relatively senior position, I was privileged enough to be financially secure and stable, privileged enough to feel comfortable to do something a little bit different and, and take a little bit more of a risk with, um, you know, with my career and, and kind of what, what it was that I wanted to do. And I guess I needed more of a challenge. And as I said, I did enjoy the sector, I enjoyed um, the work, the industry, um, I felt that I could apply myself there, but I also felt like I needed more. It wasn't just about the money. It wasn't just about kind of the, you know, the opportunity or the status. It was more about, okay, what impact am I going to leave on this world? And I, I, I don't, at the time, and still don't believe I was created to sit at a desk and um, do the work I was doing, um, which is it was good work, but it wasn't, I don't think it was changing things um, in society. Let me circle back to a point you made earlier around you were not progressing um, in comparison to your white colleagues. In that space, when you see that happening around you, what did you do before you moved on? What did you do? How did you react? How did you cope? because I think that's an element that also is not talked about a lot. We talk about a high level, 
but it's always interesting to hear like what is it like being in that ram and seeing that happening around you and yeah rather than me putting words to your mouth what was that like for you at that period of time it's a really good question not one that i've necessarily thought about much recently um but i remember it just being like deeply frustrating um i remember specific occasions where everybody can see that i was um at a level below where i should have been potentially two levels below where i should have been um my manager could see it my you know my line manager's peers could see it just everybody could see it um and it's a really weird and i'm not sure if it's like a british thing or or not but it's a really weird environment where everyone can see something it's common sense to some extent and still it doesn't get acted upon and still there is no change and for me again it was just just frustrating in terms of like what, what needs to be done here to make sure that i am progressed or promoted um and i start i guess what my the type of person i am I always look for um mentors or people that have kind of been where where i want to get to so i did have conversations with people that had managed to progress that um were also from underrepresented backgrounds and i really hated what i was told and kind of um again just to summarize it some of the messaging that i was told was things like you know you have to play the game and you have to um network and and i've got nothing against networking i think networking is great but there's certain times when your work should speak for itself and I think in some environments you can get sucked into playing this game of I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use this terminology but kissing bum um to say that's a, a lot of people are in this world where they just put themselves in environments and take on personas that are, are, are deeply misaligned with who they are in order to get to a certain position and um, when I was told that in terms of, you know, play the game, go for drinks and network and schmooze and all of that, I withdrew and I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do that because my work speaks for itself. And if I'm in an environment where being excellent at your job isn't enough to get promoted, I don't want to be in that environment because if you're saying that people that deliver mediocre outputs but are networking and kissing bum and and doing all of this extra stuff that isn't on my job description like my job description doesn't say laugh at your your line manager's jokes that's not a thing um but i am ticking all of the boxes that are on my job description um going over and above in terms of what my job description is but you're telling me that's not enough but it's all of this stuff that isn't in my job description that I'm going to be judged on and, and what my progression hangs off. Um, it's ridiculous. And and that's the kind of, that was kind of a turning point for me in terms of there are systems that are unwritten processes and situations that are deeply detrimental to, you know, this concept, this notion of equality, diversity, inclusion that need to be destroyed because ultimately that's why we end up in situations where people are exploiting nepotism to win contracts and exploiting um you know relationships and kind of 
networks that their parents have built up just to get in certain rooms and certain conversations in certain positions. And those are the things that keep people from underrepresented backgrounds accessing the same opportunities. So that was kind of the, the one of the factors that, that led to me kind of pushing back and, and resisting to some extent. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. An Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Sounds like very much so rather than compliant, which is, you, you get that, you get the compliance and assimilation, you move in the opposite direction and it kind of sparks something in you and be like, this needs to change, I need to do something about it. And obviously you eventually left and you started the equal group, which is, which is amazing. But it was an area, DNI is an area, like it's right now, where people can say to you sometimes, oh, there's a lot of firms doing this, it's oversaturated. And blood, blood, blah, 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 there's so many different statements after that. Did you ever think, my gosh, I'm stepping into an area that there are a lot more people already doing this. Is this going to be worth it? I'm coming from a completely different background to this approach. It's not like I'm even coming from a HR perspective. So did you have all those fears around creating a company around this topic, despite the fact that you're very purposeful and passionate about it? Another really good question. I think it's... Um, interestingly, I never really had that specific fear. Um, I think I've always understood the value that I, I can enter certain situations and conversations. I think diversity and inclusion was one of those areas that I, I guess when I joined this space, um, I perceived there to be a lot of individuals doing great work in this space. There were also some individuals that Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to win any friends by saying this, but just weren't doing good work. Um, there were people that had been operating in this space for 10, 15, 20 years and just year on year recycled the same presentations and the same clips, the same training. Um, and it was just very dull. And, you know, I spoke before about kind of the, the perception that people had around equality, diversity, inclusion, and it wasn't generally a positive perception. It was mainly, um, you know, political correctness got mad and people rolling their eyes and, oh, why do I have to do this? It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's nonsense. Um, and I think part of that was to do with the way that diversity and inclusion was being done. Um, when we entered this space, we were very intentional about being data-led and data-driven. Um, and that was something that we didn't see anybody really focusing on uh, at the time. And then also, I've, I've also always had this, um, I guess, this drive to create something that hasn't been created before. So when we think about the diversity and inclusion spaces, you know, to your point, there are a lot of practitioners operating in the space, but it's always kind of companies with between one and five people and they whilst you know there is space for those individuals and those organizations there comes a, 
a, a kind of tipping point where you know the the work is real and you know if you're dealing with organizations with 10 15 20 50,000 members of staff and you've got a kind of organizations with a global footprint um not to say that small organizations can't help but it's also a case of, of scale you know to what extent can a three-person organization deal with a multinational and all of the things that encompass good equality diversity and inclusion work that the work is hard the work is detailed the work is nuanced the work is intricate and that needs a level of sophistication about the solutions that you you put in place for those organizations and that is something that i don't think the um the space the environment of equality diversity and inclusion has really dealt with in a meaningful way so for me the vision was always about creating something that was significant enough to really match the scale of other professional services organizations when you think about um, accountancy practices you think about other management consultancy disciplines um, there's always a, a significance and seriousness about the the solutions that are embedded and we don't necessarily see that from diversity and inclusion perspective so that that's the space that that we are really interested in operating in for someone who runs a data-driven organization the stats, especially right now in what 2023, are not great. In fact, I, I was doing some work on this recently, looking at post George Floyd in particular, where it seems like a lot of things have actually gone backwards. How do you, you personally keep hope alive and keep inspiring your people and your team? And more importantly, just keep on doing the work where it doesn't feel like the data is so ensuring that stuff is happening, but the reality we do know it is. So how do you kind of balance both of those two things? I think one of the things about data that people don't necessarily understand is that the kind of the nuance behind it. And when we talk about data, we talk about both the quantitative and qualitative. Um, and interestingly, you'll often see in organizations, the quantitative gets quantitative in terms of numbers who, who's in certain positions what levels um you know what backgrounds they come from etc the quantitative may get worse before it gets better whereas the qualitative should if you, you know if the work's being done in the correct banner should improve um year on year so when we talk about the qualitative it's more about people's experiences how they perceive certain things and if you embed effective equality, diversity, inclusion practices and disciplines and, you know, the infrastructure that is needed to support long-term um, progress, typically you'll find that people's experiences dramatically improve overnight. Um, and then the quantitative can take some time to, 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 to reconcile itself because naturally people we've um, we've on, people have promoted, people have kind of other circumstances such as um parental leave or, or any other thing that may take them out of the workplace at any given time um so that's kind of how we contextualize this work in terms of the data side of things um i think it's also important to really think about impact so as an organization we've been focusing on theories of change and really getting better at communicating what this work looks like and um the commitment the organizations need to 
make in order to to really see the benefits of this this isn't something that you can do a one-day workshop on and then the next week you're a perfect organization this is years and years and years of intentional deep work years and years and years of uprooting ideologies and systemic issues that are deeply embedded from every part of the employee life cycle from recruitment to you know retention and eventual exit so there are a lot of things that need to change in terms of leadership mindsets in terms of the way that we manage people the way that we look at performance the way that we see value um and that is stuff that takes years and years and years to get right um so a lot of the work that we do is is working with organizations and helping them to understand this journey um but also acting as support to say you're not in this journey alone this is not something that you and your hr team just have to grapple with in isolation this for us is work that needs to be socialized across organizations across industries there's plenty of opportunity to collaborate as well so we're hopefully leading the guard on, on ensuring that industries have every opportunity to collaborate um, and make sure that we are maximizing cases of best practice and hopefully minimizing um, issues of people feeling uh, victimized or feeling um, hard done by from any particular circumstance they're going through at work. Does that mean that you have to be very intentional then about who you decide to work with because just based on what you said you need to work with people who understand that where it's not the people who are just going to be the come in and do a workshop and yay or we want this impact done straight away it's going to be more around being discerning about cultures and organizations and leaders that you partner up with because it's it's a longer time commitment yeah and i think i've i've um i've been on a journey with this um personally to, to be honest i feel feel in the early days, I was really adamant and kind of had a hard line to say, if anybody comes and asks us to just do a workshop or just do some training, um, the answer is just always no. So the first two years, probably, we, we turned down every request for um, just a workshop or just training because our perception was that, and specifically unconscious bias training, because that was kind of the buzzword back in the day. So everybody wanted unconscious bias training and saw it as a tick in the box to say, yes, we've done unconscious bias training. Therefore, our organization is is equipped to deal with equality, diversity, and inclusion. That is absolutely, I don't care how good the training is. It's absolutely a fallacy in terms of the impact that it has. So um, in the early days, we turned on a lot of work, um, which was hard to do because we weren't necessarily in a, you know, financially in a great place. Um, however, over the years, I've come to realize that there's a lot of nuance that sits behind kind of what people come to you with as as kind of their the first request and a lot of our, our kind of onboarding or initial consultation process at the moment is about unpicking that to say okay you've come to us to ask for training or you've come to us to ask for a workshop what is it that you're trying to achieve um what are the things that you've tried historically what are you looking to do in the future and really be a little bit more collaborative around how we arrive at solutions. Um, a workshop or training may not be the best starting point for every organization, but for some organizations, it actually might be. You know, that might be the way that they build buy-in, that might be the way that they socialize some of what they're trying to do in terms of bringing um, a wider kind of colleague base along on that journey with them. So 
I've, I've softened my approach a little bit. Um, and as an organization, as an organization, we've sort of softened our approach slightly. Um, and now we're a little bit more collaborative. We're a little bit more conversational in, um, really understanding what people need and, and what that looks like, but also how they articulate that. It sounds very much like, uh, it's been a journey for you as well, for you and your organization coming in and being able to recognize the fact that actually there are for us to meet people where they are, there might be a different approach and different lens of looking at this and analyzing it. It doesn't mean that obviously you're going to say yes to everyone, but you can actually use that initial request as a way of filtering and having a conversation with them to really assess what's really going on for them and then take it from there rather than just being like, you're not serious and just kind of dismissing people. Um, which to be fair, I, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it. I've done that in the past as well. And I had to go through that journey. But I actually know what is behind what people are asking for. Let's, let's talk about it and, and stick into that. I'm curious as an entrepreneur, um, as a founder organization who have people reporting to you and you're responsible for, what are some of the key lessons that you have learned going on that, on that journey? I continue to learn every day. Um, I think leadership growing a business is that the single hardest thing I've done. Um, is that true? M maybe being a parent as well, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm newer into parenthood. I was about to say like parenting and parenting marriage are up there. <laughs> so yeah, top three, top three, top three thing, hardest things I've, I've done. Um, but I think in terms of lessons, it's really, you know, people say this every day and, and kind of, I think to some extent it gets over said, but I'm, I'm going to say it again, that, you know, that you cannot underestimate the importance of having good people on your team and, and keeping good people. Um, and I think the areas where I've developed most are really in, in trying to bring the best out of people, um, and trying to support people in their own journeys i think sometimes as entrepreneurs or business leaders we can be quite selfish and, and think about us and think about our businesses and not necessarily understand that the human journey and the human journeys you know multiple human journeys that happen within the parameters of our business whether that's from employees or colleagues right down to to kind of the clients we work with and, and the, the, the workforce that they kind of operates on that side. So, um, from my perspective, it's really learning more about those human interactions, learning more about the way that I need to support my team members. And, um, I guess understanding individuals and this sounds like a really weird thing to say, but just everybody has their own journey everybody comes into certain situations with their own baggage and their own um circumstances complexities nuances and people change on a day-to-day -day basis so what worked for john or jerry yesterday may not work for john or jerry today it may not be um relevant or um appropriate for john or jerry tomorrow or next week so it's really a continual journey of learning um who people are what they need at any given time and i think it's such a privilege to get to see people 
grow and go on that journey um as an organization you know uh, uh, there's it's it's really quite a unique experience to see somebody from the the very first interview or even their application all the way to two three four years down the line having worked with you and seeing what they've turned into and kind of um the role that you've played in, in their journey and i think it's such a and maybe there are some parallels in terms of parenthood or, or marriage because i feel like they're, they're all about that that human journey and that that journey of development um but for me i guess the the other linked point is learning more about the link between how i look after myself and also the how I'm then able to show up for the people that I work with, whether that's internally or externally. And I think sometimes you can get lost in that hustle mentality or, or kind of this um, aspirations to drive change. And you look at change as an external endeavor and forget about the internal work that needs to happen to make sure that you're changing and that you're being the best version of you in order to enact that change on an external level. But to what the point that you mentioned around um, one around people you surround yourself with, how do you hire the best people around you, people who are going to be good for you, people who not only buy into what you say at a surface level, but actually means a lot to them at a deeper level? I think there's something to be said about understanding people first and foremost but then also understanding their motivators so i think understanding people first and foremost um hopefully should put you in a mindset to understand um what they're bringing to the table and not just from a skills and competence perspective but also from a you know where are they in life um you know what are the things that they're grappling with or dealing with on a day-to-day basis um and then understanding their motivators in terms of and this is going to sound really like transactional but i feel like most people show up to work for something whether that's financial reward whether that's um impact and then we we probably skew heavily to people that are driven by impact um, but there are all, all kinds of different motivators. So I think understanding people's motivators to understand what it is that they're looking for in your organization. And that may be a temporary thing that they're looking for. So, you know, whether they need finances for now or next year or the year after, or whether they need status or some kind of, of you know, validation, whatever it is that they're looking for. Um, just being really clear in terms of how you fit into the journey. Um, and I guess the, the kind of third point to that is just being really clear about expectations. So, and again, this, this may sound transactional, but it's not supposed, supposed to be. Um, but I think that the more you can understand what their expectations are of you and vice versa, the easier it is to develop a working relationship that is effective um so that's something that i'm really trying to to focus on and hone in on um for at least the next year and past that who knows that's not 
transactional at all. I think that's super important. It's one of the major areas that I've definitely seen where relationships go wrong. And whether you're a founder running a business or with your big corporate, there's always that misunderstanding of what does this person want from me and vice versa. And without both of you having that clarity, there's always going to be miscommunication and confusion. And therefore, you might think you're doing your best work and then you'd be like, what are you doing? And other person be like, I don't feel appreciated. But actually, it's just down to the fact that you're actually spending your time and doing something which is not aligned to what um, the person might be in charge of you, what kind of wants. So taking the time to do that and be very, very clear is, is so critical. And it's an area that a lot of people, especially a lot of um, leaders and founders, miss doing. There's like, yeah, we know why we're here. We know why they're hired. They know why what we do. So just let them go. It's like, no. Like, even though it might seem like it's handholded, it's super important to have that that clarity. So I definitely don't think it's transactional at all. I think it's very, very purposeful. And that's what kind of great leaders um, tend to do. So well done for actually stepping into that, for sure. And you mentioned around the fact that looking after your, looking after yourself and, and and all of that to making sure that that's um, self-care is quite key for you, which is great. I guess I'm curious, how does, in your pursuit of your business and in pursuit of looking after yourself and in pursuit of living a great life for either for you as a husband or you as, as a father, how do you actually then measure what success looks like in the overall i think that's an, an amazing question i think it's, it's one that i asked myself at the start of last year or the year before um and there's a quote by i think it's by maya angelou but i'm not sure so don't quote me too too close to it but it's success is um liking what you do liking how you do it liking who you do it with um, and then there's another dimension in terms of lacking where you do it. Um, and yeah, I think for me, like success isn't necessarily a destination. It's part of the journey. And I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine yesterday and we were really just reflecting on that to say like that the journey is super important. I think some people um, forego their happiness in the moment for pursuit of something you know, vision that, that they're brought into that may or may not materialize a couple of years from now. And I I personally don't see that as success. I think um, success has to be in the now because the, the now is all we have. You know, tomorrow isn't promised. We may or may not reach our goals and expectations and, and objectives. Um, but this the one thing that we have is, you know, how we feel in this present moment. And it's something that, I've, I guess I've really focused on more so in the last couple of years in terms of whenever whenever I'm doing anything. So whether that's team meetings or um, public speaking, panels, delivering workshops, whatever it is, I need to prioritize myself because if, if I feel good in the moment, whatever I'm delivering just feels that much more impactful. It feels that much more effective. Whether it, whether it is or not is is you know for other people to 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 ascertain, but for me, I feel better knowing that I am coming from a place of positivity and knowing that I am enjoying what I'm doing. And I think 
you know, I think a great question for people to ask themselves is, you know, am I enjoying this? And on on every level, and you know, even to the I was going to say something really personal, I was it, but um, we've started doing HelloFresh, and there are other subscription services or whatever available. Um, we started doing HelloFresh the other day, and there was a meal that we cooked, and I was like, "This is not nice. I'm I am not enjoying this." Um, and so I ended up like not eating it. Um, but I think that for me is is kind of the point of life. You know, it's not everything that we we do that we'll enjoy, but having that agency to say, I'm not enjoying this, therefore I'm going to do something else, or I am enjoying this, so I'm going to make sure that I continue to do things like this that bring me happiness, that bring me joy. Um, I think that's super important. And I do realise that's a gross contradiction to what I said earlier on in the podcast when I said that actually sometimes we have to sit in that discomfort in order to understand what it is we like or, or don't like about certain situations. Um, so yeah, a little bit of contradiction there, but... At the same time, I think they both have their, their places, right? This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out and from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions on the line will help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. But that's something that you're interested in. If you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, Send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. That just speaks to the complexity of what makes us human. It's not one size fits all for every single scenario. There are scenarios where it's like, nah, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling that at all. And there's some scenarios where you need to just sit in it and get the lessons from it. And it's interesting that you, when you talk about some of the work you're doing, um, you talk about yourself and everything else. In my head, I'm like, Max, a very, you're a very private person, but you're also out there. So when we talk about, when we talk about um, having two polarizing things, how are you both private and at the same out there? Because whether it's events, you sit on a number of different boards, you're having conversations with clients and MBD work, all that kind of stuff. So you're you're about people know you, you're, you're well known, but at the same time you're very private. So I'm like, how have you managed to really do do both both things? It's it's a really weird one. I think it's it's also perception because I a lot of people say to me things like, you know, I've been following you on the and I'm, I'm, I know like I know how busy you are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like LinkedIn sees maybe less than 5% of, of what I do. Um, but your question in terms of like, I, I'm I'm a deeply introverted person, I guess as, as kind of first and foremost. So I tend to be quite picky in terms of where I spend my time um, and my energy. Um, 
but I guess I credit the, the equal group in the journey that we've been on in terms of the last five years and having to be comfortable being out there and having to be comfortable on stages or on platforms or on recordings, whatever it is. Um, I've learned to love it. I, I think when I was in the energy sector, I very rarely did like panels or, or presentations or even trainings or workshops. Um, it's only kind of towards the last two or three years that I, I really started to, to hone my skills as um, a facilitator or a, a panelist. Um, but with the equal group, it's the place is coming from a place where actually nobody knows their brand, nobody knows you in this space. You know, in the energy sector, I had my networks and had you know a decade long career to kind of to, to leverage in this space. I was brand new; nobody knew me. Um, and I had to kind of start from ground zero. And a lot of that was networking, being comfortable, having conversations with people, being comfortable in rooms where, um, I didn't know anyone. Um, and I guess over time that's just become a way of life and I've not really stopped doing any of that because I've actually started to enjoy, um, you know, having conversations with new people and meeting different people from different sectors and, and experiencing kind of things from different viewpoints and stances. Um, but as you said, I am a, a deeply private person. I think um, part of that feeds into protecting my time to some extent. So making sure that I do have time for, um, you know, the family, make sure that I do have time to just be alone sometimes and, and just kind of reflect I'm quite a reflective person so I try to carve out as much time as possible to reflect but then there's also something to be said about the journey so when I am up and down the country and I'm traveling that you know the time on the train or the time in the car gives me time to really be who who I, I, I guess I think I am naturally which is a quite a private person so um I, I think I've managed to curate my life in such a way that I can kind of have the best of both worlds. So even when I'm speaking on panels or speaking at events, I tend to try as much as possible to ring fence my time before so I can have that time of being a private person, then show up and, and do the the more public stuff. Um, and then I can kind of withdraw to, to being back to my private self. That makes sense. It does. Perfect sense. How do you define leadership? I think I just define leadership as being able to do what needs to be done despite the circumstances. And then there's also an angle there in terms of inspiring other people through your actions and through your words. Um, so yeah, I think do what needs to be done, but also inspiring others to... to also do what needs to be done so I think there's um a certain extent to which I believe that leaders leaders make leaders so if you're a leader and nobody's inspired by your actions or nobody's inspired to do something that hasn't been done um then I don't think you're a real leader who inspires you Come on. that's a good one um who inspires me I'm inspired by my, my kids, actually. Um, I think the, their perspective, like my son is 
just under two and a half now and he just loves everything so much energy so much enthusiasm loves learning loves um demonstrating what he's learned so he's one of these people that just absorbs information so you can tell him something he'll absorb it and then like a week later we'll come back and tell you that word for word what, what he's learned and um i think that that innocence and that purity is is um really quite inspiring to see every day as a, as a new opportunity um having bags of energy having naps during the day that like that's just uh an inspirational endeavor um and then i guess in in the wider scheme of things i'm deeply in, inspired by asata shakur so she was on this can sound weird as well but i don't care um she was on america's most wanted list for for decades um but she was part of the, the Black Panther movement. Um, she was a raw activist and advocate for, for black people's rights. Um, deeply inspired by Malcolm X, deeply inspired by um, Steam Jars. He's, he's an absolute legend. Um, you, you lost me there. You lost me there. Like... <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's a couple in there. I'll take your pick. I guess let me end on this, actually. What's the the biggest change that you see happen to you, either as a father or as a husband? I think um, I think in both contexts, it's it's compassion. I feel like there's there have been times in my life when I potentially haven't been very compassionate, um, but there's something deeply uh, moving about your your family and, and people that you're connected to um experiencing things and I, I say compassion i think when you when you talk about compassion sometimes it can have negative connotations also like something um negative attached to it um but i think that whole mindset of kind of embracing embracing the world through somebody else's eyes I think is, is kind of what I mean by compassion. Maybe compassion is not the right word. Um, but there are things that my kids like to do that I don't really like to do. There are things that my wife likes to do that I don't really like to do. But I am still willing to do them because of that attachment and kind of my the the sense to which I've brought into their experience of life. And, and I think those are the things that move me outside of my comfort zone and kind of encourage me to be a better person or experience things from, from a different perspective. Cause I think sometimes we can be either slightly self absorbed or we can really just deeply buy into our perspective and our perception. And I think there are a, a lot of parallels between that and the work that we do. In terms of equality, diversity, inclusion, like the more you can see things through somebody else's perspective, the better equipped you are to change things that need to be changed, even if you don't necessarily have that as your fundamental lived experience. Um, understanding other people's lived experience and understanding how they may perceive certain situations should inspire you to, to move and to create a, a world where other people can enjoy their lived experience as much as you enjoy yours. I love that. And I was I was starting to see that correlation of personal growth flowing into the work that people do, especially when it's purposeful work. 
And that's why I love when you like we actually see things from the lens of my wife and kids and step into their world where like, oh, I don't really want to do this, but actually, you know what? It wasn't that bad. Or it was a different experience. But at least you've got that perspective now, which you wouldn't naturally have by shutting things down. And obviously that naturally flows into the work that you do. Um, because that's so relevant. So but thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for sharing your your journey. And more importantly, around the work that you are in your organization are doing, it is very different. Um, it's very intentional and purposeful. And the approach that you have, um, it's definitely needed. So, obviously, naturally, I'm encouraging a lot of organizations who really want to do some meaningful work around DEI for their organizations, for their cultures, who want to see some real change, measurable change, both qualitative and quantitative, you know where to go to. So all the information around Mac and um, the Equal Group obviously will be available in the show notes and check him out for the few posts that he might have online around the different things he's doing as well. Um, but thank you very much for coming on today, Mac. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed the, the conversation. So um, yeah, credit to you and the team for this platform as well. Thank you very much. This is Everyday Leadership. We'll see you next week. While you're still recovering from that, amazing conversation let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out that will get you so far like that will take you to a certain point of success and actualizing results in the world until it starts to eat you up and then you need a new set of tools if you want to continue to, to grow and ascend and create and that really is the journey, I think, of, of continuously assessing whether or not the tools that I'm currently working with are aligned with next iteration of me and who I'm here to be. Yeah. And then letting go of the old ones and being, being in the void of the person that you were and not quite who you're becoming and being faith in that space of like non-identity.